in 1 Kings chapter 4. Eric taught chapter 3 last week. Eric got the good chapter. I got the technical chapter. If you read ahead, this is very... But there are a few things that I want to pull out from the passage. So we're in 1 Kings chapter 4. Let's ask God's blessing on this time. Lord, we're grateful for this time together for the way that you're working in our midst. Lord, we ask that you'd bless now the study of your word, that you'd speak to our hearts, and Lord, that you'd make application in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for the abundance of blessings that we have in you. And it's in your mighty name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. What was that, Henry? Uh, do you mean this, or do you mean this Hebrew immersion school that's going on? Oh, the Bible study. The church, the Bible study. It is. Well, then don't compare it. Don't say that. We're not comparing to anybody. We just are what we are, okay? This is what we are. Well, praise God. Amen. And it's a blessing for all of us to have you. All right. So, I, I, I'm wondering if there's a carbon monoxide... <laughs> going on and we need need to check the furnace or the water heater but on here everybody's pretty giddy I know I know I'm just kidding it is I, I feel the same way Jeannie when I come I feel the same way I'm really glad to be here regardless of the kind of day I might have I'm always blessed to come together with God's people so we're picking up in first Kings chapter 4 as is the case I prayed already, right? Where's Eric? He nods. Thank you. As is the case, frequently, especially in the book of Kings and then also in 2 Kings and First and Second Chronicles, a lot of times it'll describe, and we saw this previously with David, King David, is there's a description a lot of times set aside that describes those people that are in key positions in the realm of the king, kind of his cabinet members, and that's what chapter 4 is. And it's got a lot of names, and I'm going to plow through them because I read them on my own personal devotions, and I don't like skipping them. I like going through them, although maybe when we get to another book where there's even more, I might kind of do a little bit more summary, but, I, but I'm going to read through them. The chapter begins with, So King Solomon was king over all Israel. Solomon's the third king of Israel. Just a, a little recap. Uh, Saul was the first. David replaced Saul because of Saul's disobedience. And David, at the end of his life, then appoints his son Solomon to be king. He's a, a young man, as Eric pointed out last week, uh, when he becomes king. And as a result, he makes a request for wisdom. Eh, a little issue with both Eric and Jesse saying that it was a carnal wisdom or a, however you put it. You know, I, I, I'm reading, frequently I'm reading in the book of Proverbs, and just throughout the book of Proverbs, 
Solomon's emphasis is on godly wisdom and on the knowledge of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, he says in chapter 1. And then later in the book of Proverbs, he says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I think Solomon was blessed with both, just my own opinion. And we're going to see at the end of the chapter, there's going to be a comparison made of Solomon compared to others that were notably wise in his particular generation. But the, king, the chapter begins by saying, So King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were the princes which he had. And I, I appreciate the fact that it begins with a godly office when he says that Azariah, the son of Zadok, the priest. Now, a couple of verses from now, in verse 4, it's going to mention both Zadok and Abiathar as being priests. In the NIV, it mentions in verse 5 as Nathan being, in the old King James, it says principal officer, but in the NIV, it actually says that he's a priest and the king's friend. But I think what distinguishes Azariah in verse 2 when it says the priest is the fact that he is the high priest. He's probably, that's why he's mentioned first and that's why it says the priest. And so it, there's just going to be a listing of the, the guys that were in key positions in Solomon's cabinet. It says in verse 3, and I'm going to read this out of my Bible just because it's got the phonetic sayings or soundings of these. Elihoreph and Ahiah, the sons of Shisha, scribes. So these were the guys that that wrote things down, or secretaries, as it says in some of the other versions. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilad, the recorder, that's the guy that recorded basically the history. Then it goes on in verse 4, it says that Benaiah, and we've seen him previously mentioned, but it says Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the host. So he's the captain of the army, or the general in command, the commander-in-chief, however you want to put it. Then it mentions at the end of verse 4, Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and we've seen both of them previously as well. Matter of fact, it's interesting to me that Abiathar is mentioned here in verse 4 because previously Solomon had actually mentioned that Abiathar was uh, worthy to be put to death because he was part of the group of people that were actually wanting to anoint Solomon's brother to be king, Adonijah, and instead, then, that's the point when David intervenes and appoints Solomon to be king. But here, maybe there's been some restoration, and it mentions both Zadok and Abiathar. In verse 5, it says that Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. And the officers that it's speaking of is in verse 7, it mentions 12 officers that were over all of Israel. And in verses 8 through 19 is going to be a listing of those 12 officers. So Nathan is in charge of all those guys. And it says in verse 5, the second half, And Zabad, the son of Nathan, was the principal officer and the king's friend. And so, as I mentioned, it mentioned in the newer translations, it says that he's a priest. Whether he's a priest or the principal officer, but the thing I, I take note of, and we saw this as well with David, is, is that there were those that were mentioned as David's friend. I think when you're in a position like Solomon's position, maybe there are a few people that he could confide in or feel that they weren't after him to try to influence him some way, but the role that they played was just simply to be that friend. I remember even too when we were in Albuquerque, living there, and 
I became I, what I would think would be pretty good friends with the pastor that was in Santa Fe because the church was getting started and we had some things in common. He was from Minnesota as well, and we developed a close friendship that has lasted over the years. But I, I remember one time him basically confiding in me or saying something along the same lines. He says, you know, as a pastor, it's, it's difficult to have people that you can trust, to have a friend who's not trying to influence you in some way or trying to direct you or manipulate you or try to get something from you or try to get you to do something. It's one thing to have, again, to, you know, that particular position of authority. And it's another thing to have then people that are co-laborers or serving with you or even under you as the pastor. But it's another thing to have someone that you look at and, and, and you consider them a friend, and it's something that's very valuable, I think, in the ministry. But it's something that I think is valuable for people that are in positions of authority because it can be very difficult being in those positions. Verse 6 says that a high shar was over the household. And Adoniram, the son of Abda, was over the tribute. He was the guy that was responsible. He was the chief IRS agent. He collected the taxes. And in verse 7, it says that Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel, which provided, I love this old King James word, victuals. If you ever watch, if you're old enough to remember the Beverly Hillbillies or watch it on some of these other programs that play reruns, Granny on the Beverly Hillbillies used to call them vittles. But uh, victuals, that's provision, food, you know, sustenance. And there's going to be a list towards the end of the chapter of what was daily required for to, to basically maintain and to feed Solomon's household and those that were in positions of authority. So he had 12 particular officers. And there's a distinction made. They're over all of Israel. But part of their job was to provide victuals for the king and for his household. Each man, his month in a year, made provision. So these 12 officers, you know, including the responsibility that they had over the regions, their position required that they would provide then food for the king's household one month out of the year. And I'm guessing that it was probably somewhat of a monumental task especially when you read what was necessary to feed Solomon's household. But it was something that was probably quite demanding, and that's why they would basically trade off that responsibility. Sometimes it's very useful in ministry. It's useful to, to kind of spread the responsibility out over a number of people that you have that you can trust. Now, in verses 8 through 19, there is going to be a list of these 12 guys that are over all of Israel. And the, the thing that's interesting to me about all of this, and it's kind of a departure from what we have seen going through the Bible up until this point, is that any time the nation of Israel had any issue in which they needed either to petition the king or that they needed to represent the tribes, there were 12 tribes in the nation, right? 13, actually because the tribe of Joseph was broken down into two, but then the tribe of Levi had no inheritance, so then it brought it back down to 12. Two and a half tribes dwelt on the east side of the River Jordan. The other uh, rest of the tribes dwelt on the, on the west side of the River Jordan. But the thing that's interesting, anytime you see a map, anytime you see anything happen, even at the death of Solomon and his son um, uh, Rehoboam being instituted as king, 
the heads of the tribes are going to come and they're going to talk to Solomon. And the thing that's interesting about these 12 guys, and actually I'll do this if, oh, that thing's not on anymore. I wasn't paying attention. Let's see if I can get it to come back up. Yes, that's working, right? I only need this for a minute. The thing that's interesting is map of Israel. Let's do this. This is the nation here. And as I read this description, and I'm probably not going to do this because well, with my reading glasses I can probably see. But the thing I want to bring to your attention is, is that these 12 guys are responsible for areas, but it doesn't break down to where each tribe is represented, number one. And number two, the regions in which they're responsible weren't divided by the borders of the tribe which I find interesting because it's a departure from what you typically see when the nation was represented. You would have the elders of each particular tribe represented or that would make decisions or that would be consulted in some kind of a way. And I, I, I'm thinking, again, too, because of the wisdom that God has given Solomon, that there's a particular reason why. We just The scripture just doesn't tell us why. So these are the names. Verse 8, the first guy, it says, the son of Hur in Mount Ephraim. Now, in the NIV, and this is his area of, of responsibility. In the NIV, it actually says Ben-Hur. And anytime you see in the scripture the son of, or if you see the word Ben, that's Hebrew for son. So the old King James, the translators chose to actually call them the son of. And so a number of these guys, their name is the son of Hur, where it's actually like the NIV or the newer translations where it calls him Ben-Hur in Mount Ephraim. In verse 9, it says the son of Dekar or Ben-Dekar, and he is in Mekaz, Shalbim, Beth Shemesh, and Elon Beth Halhanan. And that's down here. That's his area of responsibility. And like I said, these don't even follow the contours of the, the particular tribes. If you look in your Bible, you see how the tribes were broken up. So I'm not going to try not to belabor that point anymore. Verse 10, the son of Hesed, or Ben Hesed, in Araboth, to him pertained Socho and all the land of Hefer. So he's right here. I don't, is that even helping you? Do you need to see that? Maybe you don't. I just like doing it because I like using the technology. It's kind of fun to play with. Uh, the next guy, verse 11, son of Abinadab, or Ben Abinadab, in all the region of Dor, which had Tapath, the daughter of Solomon, to wife. So he actually married into the family and probably is someone that Solomon trusts because, again, too, it's his son-in-law. Do you want me to show you this one or not? Yes. All right. Which one was he? Abinadab. One, two, three, four. I got to look for number four. He's right here in this area. Right along the edge here, next to Megiddo. And actually, that's going to be the next one. Verse five, it's going to say, Beana, the son of Ahilud, to him pertain Tianak and Megiddo and Beth Shin. Actually, we were there when we were in Israel. We visited the ruins there in Bet Shean, which is by Zarthan between Jezreel and Bet Shean 
to Abel-Meholah, even unto the place beyond Jachneum. Uh, the next one is the son of Geber, or yeah, Geber, the son of Geber in Ramoth-Gilead. So he's number six. These numbers are really small. Huge area that he's responsible for over here. And it says to him pertain to the towns of Jair, the son of Manasseh, which were in Gilead. And to him pertained also the region of Argob, which is in Bashan, three score, 60 great cities with walls and brazen bars. And then the next guy is Ahinadab, the son of Edo in Mahaniam. And so he is right here, this edge. And right here is his region. And then the next guy is, in verse 15, Ahimaaz was in Naphtali. That's actually a tribe. He also took Bathmath, the daughter of Solomon, to wife. So he was also a son-in-law. And so he is in region number 8, which is right up here, which is the tribe of Naphtali in this area. Just the Sea of Galilee is right there. And this whole area up here reaching up into Dan. And then it says, um, Beana the son of Hushai, which was in Asher and in Eloth. And so that is right here, where it says Asher. And then, what's next? Where am I? I'm losing my spot. Which verse am I in? Uh, verse 17, Jehoshaphat, the son of Parua in Issachar. And so he is in Issachar, which is this little region right here. Sea of Galilee, this is the River Jordan that runs down to the Dead Sea. Kind of get an idea. This is the, the west side. This is the east side. Um, then Shimei, which is not the same Shimei that cursed David earlier. And as you remember, Shimei ends up dying because uh, you can go back and backtrack that. But you, uh, Solomon had put a restriction on him that he couldn't leave Jerusalem. He ended up leaving Jerusalem. This isn't the same Shimei. This is Shimei, the son of Elah, in Benjamin. And so in Benjamin, that's this little area right down here, just on the edge of Jerusalem, just to the north of the tribe of Judah. One thing I will mention at this particular point is that Judah is exempt, exempt from being ruled by these 12 officers because, number one, the king probably ruled that area. But the other thing that, that, that is interesting that probably caused some source of resentment was that as it mentions those, the, the guy that was in charge of the tribute, these 12 regions were the ones that were taxed. And I believe in one of the commentaries I read, it said that Judah was not taxed. So it created some source of resentment and animosity between the other 11 tribes and Judah, which is when then, again, to fast forwarding to when uh, Rehoboam becomes king, um, there is a lot of resentment that they have against Solomon and against Rehoboam. And, and when we get there, you'll see how part of that ends up coming into play as to the kingdom being divided. So next one is, or the last one is verse 19. Geber, the son of Uri, was in the country of Gilead, in the country of, of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and of Og of Bashan, and he was the only officer that was in the land. And so that area that he's responsible is right over here to the west of the Dead Sea. So those are the guys. 
You know, one thing I will say about this, and to me, it demonstrates something, and it demonstrates the need for leadership. It de demonstrates the need for organization. It demonstrates, you know, sometimes I think even within the body of Christ, there's this kind of mentality of let's just do whatever, you know, seems right, or let's let the Spirit lead. And the problem is you end up with chaos. And I love the fact, and we, we went through this when we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, but Solomon appoints these guys to these particular positions. We saw the ones that were kind of like cabinet positions, and then we see these guys that are officers over particular regions. And again, too, you know, he appoints them for reason. And Solomon was given this wisdom. And the thing I'll say about what Solomon did in his reign is that the nation of Israel experienced a prosperity and an expansion of the kingdom like they've never experienced. I mean, David was arguably the best king that Israel ever had. And David was a man of war. He fought a lot of battles to establish the security and the safety of the nation. But what ends up happening is, is that, and we saw this towards the end of David's life, he ends up gathering all the building materials that would be necessary for Solomon to build the temple. But the other thing that he has done, in a sense, that he's handed off to his son is this security which allows the nation to expand, to enjoy this peace and this prosperity, but also, too, you know, Solomon exercises this wisdom in establishing this leadership. And, and you see this throughout the Scripture. And one of the things I will say is that throughout the Scripture, the number 12 seems to be the number that's consistently used for governing. God establishes 12 tribes in Israel. Jesus chooses 12 disciples that eventually would become the apostles that in a sense are the guys that are the leadership of the church in its infancy. And so you see that number coming up in the scripture and you see Solomon doing this. He doesn't necessarily do it, like I said, with the tribes, but he does it with these 12 different guys. And, and what comes to mind for me, again, to application with the body of Christ as the church grows the need for those that are in positions of responsibility and of authority. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it says, Concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not that you were ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away into these dumb idols, even as you were led. Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. There are diversities of operations, but it's the same God which works all in all, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to everyone to profit with all. For to one is given, and it's going to go on and mention the, the different spiritual gifts, and we went through this at, at great length when we were going through 1 Corinthians but I'll have you jump down if you are following with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It says in verse 14 that the body is not one member but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now has God set members, every one of them, in the body as it is pleased Him. 
And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now there are many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of you. And again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So uh, what I see here again, too, in a practical sense, these positions, and again, too, just a lesson on what is necessary for whether it's a church body or whether it's a nation to function. And again, too, even within our society, you know, there is this anger that I think we have with the system that we have, or at least the choices that we have when it comes to those that are in politics. And it's, it's messed up. I, I mean, I'm just going to tell you my own personal feeling. It's messed up. But it, as messed up as it is, it's probably the best thing, at least this side of the kingdom of God, in which there is a governance. And I think, you know, there are people that just are, are somewhat even advocating for somehow, let's just let everybody do their own thing and let's just make up our own rules. And I'm just, it's really, for me, very frustrating because I'm the type of guy that follows rules. But, you know, when I see different things going on, like let's just have a disregard for traffic lights. Let's have a disregard for speed. Let's have a disregard for anything. I mean, I just I get frustrated by that. It's probably one of my weaknesses that I can so easily be frustrated or angered by those things because I feel like we need, I mean, we might not like them, but we need structure to be able for our society to function in a way that again too there's not anarchy and I think that's actually the direction that we're going as a nation and we've and you can see that other nations experiencing that as well there's just this mentality and it reminds me of the period of the book of Judges where it says that every man did that which was right in their own eyes it's getting to the point where it's like you know why should I have to listen to the police I mean, why should I have to f obey laws? Why should I have to pay taxes? Why should I have to? And again, too, everybody feels like they're being picked on. It's like, okay, you know what? Let's just try to get a bigger picture of our society and what's necessary for us to function as a nation. And I see that even, too, within the body of Christ sometimes. I see kind of a, you know, and I have to tell you, like I said, as Jeannie said, I love our fellowship. So I have an easy job. You guys are easy people. But I've seen churches, maybe larger, maybe even sometimes smaller churches, where there's just constant struggle and bickering and this and that and questioning. And, you know, for me, I want the emphasis to be on the things that are important, on God's Word, on worshiping Him, on the body edifying itself, as it says, I believe, in Ephesians chapter 4. But sometimes when there is this attention on all these other things, what ends up happening is like what, what James describes in his epistle where he says, his epistle where he describes, you know, people bickering and fighting and devouring and chewing on each other. And too many churches end up in that kind of a way. And it's like, you know what, I would rather be small and there be a, a unity in the body of Christ than to be a, a large church and there to be all these different divisions and factions within the church, so... These are, I guess for me, these are some of the lessons that I see or applications that can be made from the passage that we're looking at. Just a couple more verses to go. Picking up in verse 20, it says that Judah and Israel were many, 
as the sandwiches by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and making merry. Like I said, they're experiencing a great prosperity and wealth. Even when it describes them as being numerous as the sand of the sea, you can't help but think God's promise or the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 when he tells Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand in the sea. And even though, too, there were times in Israel's history where they were carried away captive and there was only a remnant that comes back, and even then there are passages prophetically that speak of that. Even though you be as numerous as the sand of the sea, only a, a remnant is going to be saved. You know, speaking of the judgment that's to come. And the thing is, Israel is experiencing a fulfillment of God's promise and they're experiencing a blessing during these times. And it says that Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river under the land of the Philistines and under the border of Egypt. And they brought presents and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now, one of the things that to me comes to mind when it mentions verse 20 and it enjoys, uh, you know, the, the peace and the prosperity that the nation of Israel is enjoying is that there are warnings in the scripture of prosperity and warnings in a sense to be on your guard that your heart isn't hardened against God. I think sometimes we think it'd be nothing better to be rich. You know, today I was at Cub picking up the state fair tickets and I noticed a guy came in to the next cashier next to me and he was buying a Powerball ticket. So just out of curiosity, I looked to see what the jackpot was at. And it wasn't one of these jackpots where it's three or $400 million. I think it was like 112 or $118 million. But even then, you know, you ever play that game where you think, oh, you know, if I only won the Powerball, what would I do with 100, or, you know, after taxes, probably 65 million. What would I do with $65 million? And we know, we've heard the warnings of how, you know, the, the, the potential that prosperity has to corrupt us. But we tend to think, no, no, God, if you were to bless me, I would, I would, I would give most of it away, Lord. And I would only do good things and I wouldn't be materialistic. You know, by the fact that you want that money, you're being materialistic or greedy. I mean, there are some churches that even play upon that type of a greed. God wants you. God wants to bless you. God wants you to have the best house. And God wants... You know what? They're just playing on greed, and that's what it is. But there's warning in the scripture of prosperity. And, and again, too, it, it should make us wonder about our relationship with God. If you had a choice between prosperity or relationship with God, what would you choose? Jesus says in the gospel, he says, What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? I'll read two passages out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10. It says, And it shall be when the Lord your God shall have brought you into the land which he swore unto your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you great and goodly cities which you build not, and houses full of all good things which you filled not, and wells digged which you dig not. Can you dig it? Vineyards and olive trees which you planted not. When you have eaten and are full, verse 12 is the warning, Deuteronomy 6, Then beware lest you forget the Lord which brought you forth 
out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Then shalt thou fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall swear by his name. I love the warning in Deuteronomy chapter 8 as well because again it goes into even more detail. But it says in verse 10 of Deuteronomy 8, begins in verse same verse, it says, When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you forget not the Lord your God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command you this day. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built goodly houses and dwell therein, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who led you through a great and terrible wilderness wherein there were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought where there was no water and brought you forth brought forth water out of the rock of flint who fed you in the wilderness with manna which your fathers knew not that he might humble you and that he might prove you to do you good in the latter end and you say in your heart my power and my might and my hand has gotten me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he that gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto your fathers as it is this day. In the book of Proverbs, the closing chapters, there's one attributed, chapter 30, to a guy named Agur. And he says in chapter 30, verse 7, he says, Two things have I required of you, speaking to God. Deny me not them before I die. Remove far from me vanity and lies. The second one is give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me f with food that's convenient for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of of the Lord my God in vain. You remember when Jesus taught the disciples to pray? He said just, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, give us this day our daily bread. You know, the prayer doesn't say, give me enough bread for the year, Lord. As a matter of fact, remember when the children of Israel in the wilderness, and they're instructed to go out and gather their bread each and every day. We're to live life that way and not to, again, to hoard or put our trust in things. Material possession, it reminds me, and actually I, I kind of pulled this out. If you get a chance, you could probably Google it, but you probably have to get the book. My wife and I used to read this devotional by uh, Chuck Swindoll. And the name of the devotional was Growing Strong in the Seasons of Life. And one of his devotionals, he, the, the title of it was Very Thin Wires. And I'll just read a little bit of it. I, I wasn't able to pull it all off because the Internet didn't have it all. <laughs> um, but he writes, I recall a phrase from one of Alexander White's work. It came to my mind early this morning. The old biographer wrote of our tendency to hang very heavy weights on very thin wires. We really do. We hang the very heavy weight of our happiness on the very thin wire of our health. High-risk investment. 
People I know who have that wide, vertical, zipper-like scar down the middle of their chest are living proof that we are only a pulse beat this side away from that side. Something as tiny as a blood clot, smaller, much smaller than a pea, if lodged in the wrong place, can suddenly turn our speech to a slur and reduce our steps to a shuffle, if that. Two doors away from our home, an entire family has been transformed from a, a life of activity, laughter, and hope to a quiet, introspective group of serious-looking, almost out-of-touch people. Their only son, a brilliant, alive, bright collegian with the sky's the limit promising future, had a head-on collision with a semi. Snap, went the wire. Totaled car, almost total driver, toppled family. The boy, quasi-conscious, hardly resembles the young man who used to catch my passes on Thanksgiving afternoon and light fireworks with our Kurt every 4th of July. He may never walk again or talk or think clearly, swiftly, silently, like a deep river. Life moves right on as that family now turns on uh, turns in every night with a sigh. Health is a very thin wire, unable to support our happiness. We hang the very heavy weight of our peace on the very thin wire of our possessions. We know better, but we still do it. Materialistic to the core, we convince ourselves that life does consist of the abundance of the things which we possess. That contentment is not limited to food and clothing that the birds of the air and the lilies of the field don't know what they're missing without all those creature comforts. Enter brushland fires on the furious wings of Santa Ana winds, exit Southern California homes and appliances and furnitures and beds to sleep in and cars to drive and peace. Snap goes the wire when something as heavy as peace is so inseparably linked to something as thin as our possessions. We're only asking for trouble when we lead ourselves to believe that our internal agitation will subside once we get that place in the mountains or a quaint condo on the beach or a little larger boat or a little better job or a microwave for Christmas. <laughs> that kind of dates it. <laughs> Who even wants a microwave anymore for Christmas? It's an old devotional. We used to read it when we first got married in the early 80s. Or a second TV or a stereo upstairs or an original oil, or a living room, or a special tool in the garage, or, or, or. It's not that owning any of this stuff is wrong. You know that. But when it's pursued in, ho in hopes of acquiring peace in the package, no way. We also hang the very heavy weight of our security on the very thin wire of our savings. Solomon was right as usual when he wrote in Proverbs 23, 5, Cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. That's the part of the syndrome Haggai the prophet describes in chapter six or chapter one, verse six, when he says, "You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it." And then he goes on to tell the story of this wrestler, I think, at the turn of the century, named Yusuf the Terrible Turk. And uh, he ended up winning it all. This is where I got cut off. But I remember from the devotional, he ends up winning all this gold and, and silver as a professional wrestler. And I don't recall what ship he was on. It may have been the Titanic, the maiden voyage, voyage of the Titanic. 
but he would wear, because he was worried about people taking his money, he would wear it on a money belt, gold and silver coins. And when the ship went down, the guy weighed 350 pounds. He was already going to have a hard time swimming. But with that added weight of gold and silver on his waist, he sunk to the bottom like that, and snap goes the wire of hanging your so. And, and when I see this, you know, what's going on in Israel's history at this particular time, the prosperity they're enjoying, the thing that they should have done was guard against their hearts being lifted up against God. And Solomon, their king, is going to be seduced into worshiping false gods. But the nation itself will never experience the kind of prosperity they did at this point. We just can't handle it, it seems like. We forget who God is, and there's not an appreciation for the blessings of God. I'll, I'll close by reading the, the, close, the rest of the verses. It, it describes the provision of Solomon's house. Verse 22, that Solomon's provisions for one day was 30 measures of fine flour, 60 measures of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 oxen out of the pastures, 100, and sh 100 sheep beside hearts and roebucks, and fallow deer and fatted fowl. For he had dominion over the region on this side of the river from Tipsa even to Aza over all the kings on this side of the river and he had peace on all sides round about him. Verse 25, it says that Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree from Dan even to Beersheba all the days of Solomon. And Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses. There's actually some question or issue as to whether or not that number of 40,000 is correct. It's probably misrecorded. It should have probably been 4,000 because in the book of Chronicles it mentions that it was 4,000, but also to another place in the scripture describes that he had a total of, I think, 1,400 chariots. So he would have way too many horses for the 1,400 chariots that he had. It's probably 4,000, but that's just kind of a side note. Verse 27, it says, Those officers provided victuals and provisions for the king Solomon and for all that came into the king's table, every man in his mouth, and they lacked nothing. Barley also and straw for the horses and dromedaries brought they into the place where the officers were, every man according to his charge. Verse 29, And God gave Solomon wisdom in understanding exceeding much and largeness of heart even as the sand that is on the seashore. I love how the old King James actually translates that. You lose that in the newer translations because I think it's actually a play on, again, to what God is doing in the life of the nation. He makes the descendants of the nation of Israel as numerous as the sand and the sea, as it says earlier. But he also does a work in Solomon's heart in granting him this wisdom to be able to govern this large people. And he has wisdom, understanding, and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east country and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezraite, and Heman and Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all nations round about, and he spake 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005, and he spake of trees from the cedar trees that is in Lebanon, even of the hyssop that springs up out of the wall. He spake also of beasts and of fowls and of creeping things and of fishes, 
And there came of all the people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all kings of the earth which had heard of his wisdom. Something that again too, just that gift attracts people. I don't know that, and again too, this would have been a perfect application of Solomon's wisdom and maybe in the book of Proverbs he's alluding to this, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But what a great opportunity to point even the, the non-Jewish nations to God because they're coming to Him to see and to hear of His wisdom. And then to be able to point to God and say, this is how I've got this wisdom. It is a gift from God. And I think with anything, we need to give God glory for the gifts that He's given us. So let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank You for this time. Lord, we thank you for the blessings that we enjoy not only in our fellowship but the blessings that we enjoy in this country and maybe we don't realize how blessed we really are as a nation until we see the poverty of other nations and of other people that are struggling and Lord I pray that we would never take for granted or put our trust in the wealth and in the blessings that you've given us but we do see our nation heading for the same fate, Lord, lessons so many times aren't learned as they're demonstrated in the scripture, Lord, what happens to a nation that experiences poverty or that experiences prosperity but doesn't continue to put its trust in you. And Lord, I pray that as a nation there would be a repentance, that there would be a, a great revival and that there would be a, a great turning to you once again, Lord just ask you to bless your people and it's in your mighty name Lord Jesus that I pray. Amen.